Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Just one announcement before today's episode. As you may remember, I had Peter Singer on this podcast many months ago, and Peter recently emailed me to tell me that because of that podcast, a woman in California donated $200,000 to his organization, The Life You Can Save, and 90% of that money goes to evidence-backed charities that fight extreme poverty. So that's a great feeling. Okay, on to today's guest. Desiree Campbell is a YouTuber, writer, and artist. Her show, which I've been on, is called Just Thinking Out Loud. Desiree and I talk about racial identity and quote-unquote blackness, the notion of racial pride, the differences between America and Desiree's homeland of Jamaica with respect to racial identity, how children think about race, affirmative action, immigration, and more. So without further ado, Desiree Campbell. All right, Desiree Campbell, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be talking to you again. So I think the last time we talked publicly, uh, and full disclosure for the audience, we are friends and have talked privately many times since, but I think it was two years ago that I was interviewed on your show, Just Thinking Out Loud. Really does not seem like two years ago, but... Yeah, wow. Time really, really flies. Yeah, Yeah, I'm actually not sure exactly what the date was, but it's one of the most popular videos on my channel. I was wondering if I could maybe go look it up, but I don't remember. I'm not sure. I don't remember everything we talked about there. I'm sure we'll cover some of the same stuff here, but if folks want to go check that conversation out, you can go to Just Thinking Out Loud on YouTube and uh, type in my name. And uh, that was, was that before we met in real life or, or after? Oh, oh my gosh. It's so, I, I don't I know. I think it was after. Remember. It must've been after. Um, I had seen some of your, your videos and I was impressed to just, you know, they're, they're, it's so rare to find somebody like-minded on the topics of racial identity and quote unquote blackness and I remember meeting you and then went on your show and learned about your background. And so I want to sort of give the audience a sense of who you are before we start talking about our areas of mutual interest. So can you talk a little bit about your upbringing? Where are you from and what kind of context did you grow up in? Sure. So I am I'm from Jamaica, the country, not Jamaica anywhere in the U.S. because I know there are places with the name. Uh, I lived in uh, Jamaica. Um, I was born there and I stayed there until I was 17. I'm not really sure how to describe Jamaica, but I was mostly from the city. But, you know, my, my mom is from the country in Jamaica and like we visited there a lot. 
And I would say that I've traveled around the island a lot when I was younger and I'm also very friendly. <laughs> so I, you know, talk to people. It's hard to understand exactly how it influences uh, my perspective being in the U.S., but it most definitely does. So I'm, I'm an outsider. I've been in the U.S. now for almost 11 years now, a really, really long time. Um, and I've gone back to Jamaica, you know, during that time period, too. But I, I've mostly been here for school. So I came to the U.S. because I wanted to study more than one thing. That, that is the main reason I came. I actually didn't want to go to the United States because I, I was like eccentric. And I was like, I want to go somewhere that I don't know about already. And I knew so much about, I thought I knew so much about the U.S. through like the media, like the U.S. media is everywhere. So I was like, I want to go somewhere else. But the U.S. has a liberal arts education, which a lot of people hate on, including myself nowadays. But I think there's a lot there. And I studied both biology and studio arts. Um, I mainly did work-related things using the biology, but I do art on my own time. So I also make art, uh, which a lot of people like. So you might want to look into that too. And I was pretty apolitical and a interested in cultural issues um, in the U.S. for a long time. I was mostly just you know focused on my work. Until about um, 2016, when it, it seemed like everyone started going crazy. Um, and my main reason for wanting to discuss um, issues of identity, which is what I think is what, well, I wouldn't say it's the only thing people know me for, but a lot of people know me for that, um, was because I couldn't not do it. <laughs> I couldn't not just live my life in the U.S. without people wanting to talk to me. Not really that, but it was mostly the like assuming things. I, I say it a lot, but that is really the main reason why I even started looking into things is because I would just keep meeting people of all races. I'm not, I wouldn't just say one or the other. That would just think I would think something because of how I look. And I, I found it annoying and then I found it disturbing. <laughs> and then when I found it disturbing, I was like, oh my God, I have to do something. And I didn't, I'm a bit outspoken. so. I started doing that. So the notion of a black identity meaning something is, is very intuitive and obvious to, I would say, most black people in America and, and many non-black people as well. The notion that being black means something in particular, that it entails either a certain worldview, a certain knowledge, a certain experience. A certain politics. But one thing I've noticed about you is coming from Jamaica, where almost everyone is black, I think you you have an instinctive distrust of the notion that quote unquote blackness means anything deeper than the color of your skin. Is it fair to say there's a connection between your background growing up in Jamaica and you forming that instinct, if you agree that it's an instinct you have? Um, 100%. But I will also add that my ability to go against the grain um, in terms of being okay with people not liking what I'm saying, that that's me. I think I'm very outspoken. A lot of people aren't like that. However, my perspective um, in terms of being Black 
it's not that that's not an identity where I'm from. It's our, it's not like people don't associate like history, you know, like say there's a little bit of the, the transatlantic slave trade stuff. Like you learn about that, blah, blah, blah. That is there. It's just not the main part of you. Whereas here in the U.S., it just feels like a lot of people are like this is this is what gives me meaning in life. And that is not at all the case um, where I'm from. Do you know Camille Foster? Have you met Camille yet? Um, I have, but not really. Like okay. we've like interacted through like online, but not fully. No, you have to meet Camille in real life for the full experience. But I, I know he's aware of you. Camille gets in a lot of trouble privately and publicly because he doesn't identify as black. If you ask him like what he is, he'll tell you his parents are from Jamaica. He's from Washington, D.C. And his name is Camille. But he will not identify as black on out of a principled desire to not reify this fake notion of race that people are obsessed with. I've never really gone down that route fully with Camille because I, I agree with the principle on which he bases his uh, decision to, to not identify as black. But I feel like it's possible to just say one is black without buying into all the baggage that word means for other people. What do you think of, of that? Do you identify as black? Do you understand where Camille is coming from? Or do you identify as Jamaican? How do you view your own identity? Um, I do not identify as black. I never have. And it, it's, it's, but, I'm, but I am black, if that makes sense. Mm. The thing is that when you're in the U.S., I don't think it's possible to identify as black without taking on all the baggage. Mm. Once you understand that people have all these perceptions, you can't do it anymore. I actually had a conversation with one of my friends from Jamaica who she migrated here when she was like 15. And um, she brought it up to me without me saying anything to her, which made me really happy because it validated my feelings <laughs> that I was having at the time. And she made this comment. She was like, I'm not black. And the, the reason why she said that was because she she was understanding that the way people in the U.S. use that word is very different from the way people say in Jamaica use it. Mm. So that it's like no one would say something like I'm not black in Jamaica. They would say I'm black. And then mm. there's like there's no issue there. But when you're here, there's a whole different meaning. And so you don't you don't want to identify with that. So I've never identified as being black, but I would I would also like I'd probably make a comment like that. And like it, I wouldn't. How you make, how do I say that? Like, I'm sure at some point in conversation with people, like I've made comments that I am black, but been unaware consciously of what that means in the past, the way that I do now. Mm. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I think what you're talking about is that there are two senses of the word black. One is purely descriptive of your skin color or visible characteristics that mean nothing deeper. And what I hear you saying is that in Jamaica, that's what people mean when they say black. They don't mean anything. It's not freighted with all of these other assumptions about what you believe and what you've experienced. Whereas in America, many people 
have but black means something much more than just your skin color. So, but the, I guess there are two ways to approach that. There, there's one is to do what you what you what you just said, and and basically accept that black means what it means in America. It comes with those assumptions, and then reject that label. But I, I guess my instinct is to encourage the American definition of black to resemble the Jamaican definition of black, where it's just a neutral descriptive term for somebody that need not lead to any other assumptions about what they think or what they've experienced. So essentially what I say is I would like to identify as the Jamaican version of black, where it just means nothing more than it needs to mean. and reject the American notion of black, which means you, you must think a certain way about politics. Um, you must feel a certain way about the police. You must, they're just a, a whole laundry list of things. One is, one is supposed to assume about the world because of the color of one's skin. Do you not think it's possible to rehabilitate the American term black? Do you think it's, it's a lost cause? Um, <laughs> I'm going to say 70% no. Because <laughs> 70% no, it's not a lost cause? Um, no, 70, 70% it is a lost ah. cause because people will just keep reviving it. So there are people who really want to have um, Black pride um, and to have all those associations with, uh, you know, skin color with um i like to say phenotype but it sounds weird but because it's not just skin color it's like the right. hair it's like everything um associate that with the with mental you know inner characteristics there are people who really really want that and that's all they know and that's what they will continue to pass down um they could possibly have less cultural dominance but i also think that kind of thinking is very useful for um people, I would say, who not necessarily want to sow division, but want to have power. And so the likelihood of it going away or diminishing in importance, even though it might not go away fully, I think is very, very low. So I do think it's possible, but I, I, I don't think that people will let it go. Another thing I want to say is <clears throat> I do not agree with it, but I, I think it's fine for people to want to like care a lot about those things and to have pride, et cetera. But I just don't think it should encompass everyone who just looks a certain way. Like there has to be a way for people to opt out of that. I mean, there doesn't have to be, but I would like for there to be a way for people to opt out of attaching themselves to something that they, they just never signed up for. Mm. I, I think it's extremely disturbing. <laughs> um, like there's a sense of ownership that comes over other people that I sense in the, in the U S from everybody, just because you look a certain way. I think that is truly, truly, it really disturbs me. <laughs> it really, really does when you really think about it. So it's not that I, I don't think people should be able to have those ideas is that black shouldn't equate to, I don't know what you call it, black pride or black essentialism. Right? I don't know what the word is. Like there should be a, a difference uh, between those those two things. Um, but yeah, I'm giving you a percentage. 
Yeah. Um, I'm probably just as pessimistic as you about the actual prospects of making the identity of blackness more of a neutral descriptor. I want to talk more about the idea of having pride in your race, because this is something that a lot of not just black people, but people around the world feel. And the dynamics of this changes very much by country. If you go to Poland, say, I think you would find a lot of Polish people that have pride in being Polish. And, and you know, you could say the same of almost any other country in Europe. And there was a time when people actually would refer to the different European countries as races, right? The French race, the English race, uh, so on and so forth. And so what it meant to have race pride in that context was to have pride in your white ethnic group, what we would today call white, though there was no concept of whiteness really in, in general, or that was not really an important concept, at least. When you look at America today, obviously, white pride is something you can't express. It's something that is synonymous with racism. The, the person who says they're proud of being white is pretty much unselfconsciously signaling to the world that they're a racist. So that Anyone who maybe does feel some kind of pride, but doesn't feel like a racist will just know not to say such a thing. What you can say is, I'm proud to be an American. And the American identity is different from European identities in the sense that it's, we've at least made a very strong effort to not have it be based on race, right? You can say, I'm proud to be an American and be any color, be from any part of the world. You can be a hyphenated American. You can be a Jamaican American, a Polish American, uh, whereas you can't be, you can't really be a Jamaican Pole, or they're, they're, that concept just is not as strong. And I guess the the root of this question is, what is the moral status of having pride in a group versus having pride in oneself as an individual? Given that a lot of normal people all around the world have pride in their group, it's a pretty normal human trait to feel. At the same time, I often cringe at the the effects of group pride because ultimately it's a simply by accident of birth that you were born somewhere rather than another. And so to take pride in it as if it's an accomplishment of yours has always seemed to me to be a crutch And it's a crutch I can understand. It's a crutch I can even feel at certain points. But upon reflection, I do think it's it's the crutch of someone who finds it too difficult to build something as an individual. So how do you see the difference between having pride in one's group and having pride in oneself? Um, I agree with your take that you just explained at the end. Upon, upon reflection, because I think the, the key point there is upon reflection, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't make sense to, to have pride in the group because it's you're have you're taking pride um and the, also the flip side feeling negatively um for actions that you yourself didn't take. I however 
also think that this is uh, just a part of the social nature of human beings. Um, so I think if you take the time to really think about it, to reflect on it, and you try to have, um, um, yeah, I don't know how to say, a pure character when it comes to this stuff, I would go with your thinking. And I'm, I'm more think like that because I'm, you know, I'm like thinking as an individual, but, uh, and I promote that, I guess, for the vast majority of people, they're just not, they're just not like that. I do think that you can make a distinction between ethnic pride versus racial pride. Although I don't agree with either of them. I think the racial pride makes less sense than the ethnic pride, just because there's more of a sense, I think, of an actual shared identity with the uh, ethnic pride. Because the, the racial pride, it, it spans people who have, I think, very, very, very little in common. Like, they're okay, there's biology, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think that means very much. And um, this is what you asked me, but I don't think I've even said this anytime on my channel, but this is something I've thought before that I find almost amusing is all these people going around calling themselves black when, I mean, I guess people in Jamaica did that too or do that, though not in the same way as in, in America, when they never did that before they were grouped together as being one identity through, I think, slavery as an institution. Like people just didn't conceive of themselves as being like one and the same with like another tribe. But like, it's just adopted now and, and they fight you. If you, if you want to like not do that, I think that's ironic or something. Cause I, I know that, that, that is not like Africa, Africa had slaves, like they separated themselves and like they, they didn't have like some one racial identity that now exists due to, I think the institution of slavery. So I just think that's very, very interesting. So I think I answered your question plus added a little bit. This is something Thomas Chatterton Williams has talked about. I don't know if you, have you met him? No, but I know who he is. Yeah. So one thing he says in his book that I think is hilarious and true is that if you ask a, a, especially a well-read or, you know, elite black person in, in America, why it's the case that a person who is mixed race, who has a black mother and white father, for instance, is considered black or can identify as black rather than mixed race or biracial or even white. Because from an objective point of view, those are equally arbitrary choices to make, right? The fact that Obama identifies as black rather than white from the universe's point of view is, is totally an arbitrary decision. But in our culture, it's obvious to many people that, that he should identify as black. A lot of times the answer you will get is, oh, well, there's this thing called the one drop rule which is back in the days of slavery, if you had even one quote unquote drop of black blood, if one sixteenth, if, if, if one out of 16 of your great grandparents were black, you would be considered black enough to be a slave. And Thomas Tatterton Williams says, okay, well, that's all well and good. I understand the history, but why the hell would we impose plantation logic on ourselves today when we have the choice, right? Because it's, it's not obvious that because 
a certain norm was the case under slavery, that it, we must continue to perpetuate that norm today. Yeah, this just seems like an obvious connection to many people that we can't, we are, we are stuck in the racial categorizations that were created by slavery. We can never outgrow them. And to think otherwise just marks you as ignorant of the history. It seems to me there is, there's very little prospect of outgrowing race if this is what the next wave of college students are being taught, essentially, is that America's attitude towards racial categories was fixed in, you know, around the year 1700. And we're, we're just doomed to inherit the rigidity of those racial categories for all time. And that's why when someone like you or Camille comes along and says, I'm not black, a lot of black people have an aneurysm. They cannot process it because it's, in a way, I think people, people become wedded to these categories, even if the categories themselves, we all acknowledge were born in sin and they end up giving people meaning in life. And I think maybe there is a benign way of getting group pride, which is, for instance, sometimes I think about when the Olympics is happening and I just turn on a random... I don't know, like skiing or something. I just don't, I don't know anybody who's doing it. I don't really care about it, but I feel like watching it because it's the Olympics and it's America versus some other country. I root for America. I just do. And I get a little bit happier if America wins because America is familiar to me. Of course, if, if America is going against, say, I don't know, like Sweden or whatever, I, I have no feelings of ill will towards Sweden. I don't want us to go invade Sweden I don't want to see Sweden do poorly in the world. Not that they're at risk of doing poorly, but that seems like a kind of benign pride. It's like a pride that doesn't hurt anybody. I I like New York sports teams more than Boston sports teams. I just grew up hating the Patriots. That's just what one does if you grew up, if you grow up in the New York area. Do I actually wish something bad would happen to Tom Brady? No. I, I they say he's a great guy. He does a lot of charity work. I can step back from my provincial New Yorker perspective and understand that, you know, none of this stuff matters, but I can kind of role play pride in order to have fun watching sports say. And if racial pride could become more like that, I would, I think I would have no problem with it. If it, if it felt like something you can step into in a benign way in order to have fun in certain situations. I know a lot of black people will root for the black person they're watching. And, you know, you root for Tiger Woods because he's black. That's sort of how I, how I grew up as well. And that kind of stuff seems benign to me. But then there's this much more serious and pernicious style of race pride where it basically having pride in your race is a substitute for thinking about specific issues. And the one that's always on my mind recently is, is policing, right? It's like, if you are a proud black person, that means you must say all cops are bastards. You must think every instance of a policeman and a black person getting into a confrontation 
any one of these incidents that we've seen over the past year is racism, right? It's obviously racism. There's no more complexity to the issue. And, and so race pride becomes a substitute for thinking about complex ethical issues. That I think is where it, it tends to go too far. Right. So you moved moved from the the topic of uh, defining people as a black or white based off, based off of the historical institution of slavery Mm. to the racial pride thing. Yeah, I kind of ranted. That's okay. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to remind myself because I want to respond to um, yeah. the whole thing. I uh, I agree with um, both of the things you said. So in terms of, is it Thomas Chatter Williams? I'm not Chatterton, sure. Chatterton. Chatterton. <laughs> Thomas Chatterton Williams. Yeah, the, the one drop rule doesn't make sense to me. I think it's arbitrary. Um, I think people could choose to divide themselves differently. In Jamaica, people distinctly separate mixed from black or white they don't just group mixed people like maybe that sounds totally weird and odd but like people just say you're mixed and that's different from if you're black Mm -hmm. um and mixed includes everything not just black and white but asian like the other stuff other races too there's just any kind of mix in between that's something that i i've had to get used to uh, I mean, I have gotten used to it <laughs> in the in the U.S. because um, I just don't really no one uses that term here. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, do think that it's possible for it to change. I don't know. I don't. I just don't think it's impossible. I think it's not likely for the reasons you said. Like people are uh, people are raised from birth basically to it's it's passed on through culture. Mm-hmm. This is an argument I have with a lot of people on uh, Twitter, both black and white people, mostly they're just those two people. Those two groups are people in those groups who really, 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 really care a lot about race, (laughs) which they're fine. They're free to do. They will say that even without socialization, people would place a lot of importance on race. And I, I don't think so. Mm. And I, I, you're talking about racial pride and how that goes really badly. But we also know that people do that for things other than race. They kill each other over religion. So like, even if the U S didn't have a racial pride issue or I call it a racial fetish I have before, um, there might be something else that, people very very strongly align themselves with and uh, as you put it use as a substitute for thinking so i think this you could call it tribalism or collectivism it just comes it comes out in the u.s through race because of the history but i do think it could come out in other ways as well so i i just i guess i guess that's my response i i do think these things in terms of the racial groupings are arbitrary I think you would have an aneurysm. <laughs> I thought that was funny. If something that you, it's like your structure for society um, being poked at. Mm. You know, it's like this is literally how you narrate the world for yourself. So I think it's arbitrary, but this is what a lot of people in the US do. So it's just something people agree upon. And you're trying to change something that is uh like this is how people navigate their lives so it wasn't always that way 
the these the different races of people they've interacted a lot in the i guess before both i would say the arab or the arab slave trade and the, the european colonization stuff so i'm sure different races have been interacting before then but i don't know the details of their history nobody really cares and i'm sure that there are other ways of conceiving identity in the world like humans are fully capable of doing that so i just want to say it's definitely not impossible for these things to change but i don't know if they will because it's what people want <laughs> like and people like me and uh can't pronounce the name camille 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 um will come along and reject that but we're only a few people and i'm not saying like a few people can't change things they can but I don't know. It's not people have to want that. So I guess that's my response. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, especially when it comes to something we take every day. Ritual's clean, vegan-friendly multivitamin is formulated with high-quality nutrients in bioavailable forms your body can actually use. What you won't find? Sugars, GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, and artificial colorants. Plus, the fresh taste and delayed release capsule design makes taking your vitamins easy. A multivitamin should contain key nutrients and forms your body can actually use to help fill gaps in the diet. No shady extras. Ritual's delayed release capsule design delivers high-quality nutrients, including vitamin D3, in just two daily pills. Ritual multivitamins are delivered to your door every month with free shipping always. You can start, snooze, or cancel your subscription anytime. And if you don't love Ritual within your first month, they'll refund your first order. Get key nutrients without the BS. Ritual is offering listeners of this podcast 10% off during your first three months. So visit ritual.com forward slash Coleman to start your ritual today. Yeah, I want to, something you said is something I think about often. And this is about how we socialize children into having a racial identity and into conceiving of that racial identity in a particular way. I was rereading White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo a few months ago. And I remember I, I came across the passage again about her view that kids are actually racist, right? Or at minimum, they're much more racist than naive adults tend to think. Her view is that simply by growing up in America, children very quickly imbibe all of the racial stereotypes that are perpetrated by mainstream culture and that those become biases in the children's mind very quickly so that she disagrees with the notion that that sort of children are naturally not born racist or, or they're they're they have to be taught racism sort of as adults or, or develop it. And I remembered back to my own childhood. I grew up in a town that was about one third black people around a little under two thirds white people and the remainder um, Hispanic and Asian, which is a much more diverse 
context than most people in America grow up in. And I remember, I was trying to remember actually what I thought, if I thought at all about race between the ages of, say, four and, and 15 or so. And certainly I thought a little bit more about it as I got to that older part of that age range because it, it just it can occur to you more when you're, you know, you almost have the mind of an adult. But for the most part, I did not think about race at all. I remember uh, among my close group of friends, there were black kids. There was one mixed kid was one of my best friends. There was a Jewish kid was one of my best friends. And I, I honestly remember not caring at all. I remember noticing what they looked like. Like I could draw a picture of them. I could tell you which crayon corresponded to their skin color. I noticed their race in that sense. But I don't remember having any, any associations with, you know, Greg is my Jewish friend. Therefore, I feel about him a little differently than I would if he was Jordan, my mixed friend, or, you know, Sherrod, my black friend. I, I don't remember having any of those kinds of thoughts as a kid. And I do, what I remember is instinctively, feeling colorblind, not in the literal sense that I can't notice race, but in the metaphorical sense that I really didn't care and didn't see how one could care. Race was a silly adult obsession. So insofar as I could tell, akin to many of the other silly adult obsessions that I didn't understand at the time. And so I really do feel that I had to be socialized into thinking and and caring about race. It's just, it's so at odds with my own memory of my childhood. And I don't think that I'm maybe was not the most typical or average child in the world, but I was by no means some crazy exception. Um, I'm curious, what do you remember of your own childhood attitude towards race? And to the wider question of what do you think how do you think children, what kind of attitudes do you think children naturally form towards race? And how are those attitudes influenced by the adult world? I had a similar experience, I think, to you. But I, but I also had it well into my teens mm. before coming to the, the States in terms of being around people who are look differently from me. Uh, I think that children um, react to... Um, familiarity. So I, I do think that's something that happens that a, a baby or a child might react differently to the, like the face or the, I guess, physique or appearance of someone differently, um, depending on how familiar they are with them and what they associate with them. But I don't think that's the same thing as race. I do think those two things can merge. And I also think that being unfamiliar with something isn't the same as uh, not liking that thing. That's very different. And unless you've had a direct experience um, with other people, if you're having ideas about this, I don't know, other group in this case, we're talking about race. I think that's from society. So I do think that people... (laughs) 
socialized into being racist. By the way, the way that I thought of the word racist when I first came here, um, and that would apply to everybody, including myself right now, which people have said is harsh, but like, it's just like this, like noticing and like seeing, framing everything through race. This is like what America can, makes Can you say do. that again? Can you say that? I, 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 yeah, yeah, sure. Are you saying the, Sorry, the, I kind of, yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you mean? The way that I thought of the word racist being applicable to someone would apply to everyone in America, including myself. Okay, so um, I heard it right. I was just right. That, like I when I first came to America, when I first came to America, that is that is how I would have like that's not how Americans think of that word racist, mm-hmm. but it's just like when you're seeing everything through race, that means you're you're always putting people into these categories. Like you notice these things. I never did that. And I, I, I do that now. A lot of times it falls away if I'm usually just not consuming media or something. And I'm sure when I go home, I, I won't be thinking like that. But just being in America, you're always putting people into these, these categories. And like, that's not something that I did naturally. So when you talk about being a kid, I have that similar experience to you, but I also had it much later um, into my teens before coming to the, to the U.S. because it, it's just... Yes, it's there. Like I even <laughs> joke with my friends about, cause I had friends who were of different races, like who would be the slave, who would be the indentured servant, who would be the, the slave master. And it's like, it, it's like, it's like, yes, it's like you understand the history of where you're coming from, but like, like that's not how you're associating with people. You're not having arguments over racism in society. Like that's, that's not going on for one. Um, you're not talking about repatriations. You're not, and I think this is really, really important in terms of the socialization thing. And I've mentioned it a lot. We talked about it when you came on my show, but I really think constantly being asked to identify yourself as, as a certain race, Mm. that's going to make you do that. Like that is socialization. It's like, you're, you're like a fish in the sea. You're always, always, always associated everything by race. That, That is socialization. And that is something that happens in America. And that Robin Neangela, I haven't read her, her book. She is uh, creating that. She's like, oh, people are being socialized into being racist. Like, well, you're doing that. You're putting that out there into, into the culture yourself. And you're, that's trickling down to the kids. I uh, was really upset when I found out that they're, they're trying to do training sessions with three-year-olds in order to, like, de-bias their brains. But, like, you're literally putting... <laughs> Putting like the thoughts of race into their heads. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> I know your, your face is like, right. <laughs> like, still, but I can see like, you, you know, you, you can see just like how insane these people are, in my opinion. Like you, you are literally doing that. Like you're, you're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy and you're loading kids with, with all of this stuff. Like you are the person creating what you're tra- you're, you claim you're fighting against. Like you're doing that. That is, that is what I see. I can't yeah. remember your initial question, but <laughs> no, that was great. Um, I, I, a couple directions I wanted to go there. One is just, yeah, I, I can't imagine what it would have done to me if someone had, you know, taken me at five years old and put me in a D'Angelo style critical race theory seminar. Because I, I was also the, very much the type of kid that wanted to please the teacher and master the concepts better than anyone else in the class. And if the concepts that were given to me were 
blackness means this, whiteness means this. I can imagine myself being the type of kid that really just went into it completely. And that that really disturbs me. I think it's evil to perpetrate on children these needless divisive categories that we suffer from as adults. And again, it's very difficult to deprogram an adult once you've bought into a particular tribe that, you know, you're, you're after a certain point, you're sort of baked, but children are much more malleable, much more suggestible, socializable, if that's a word. And I, I really think it's, we should think very long and hard before we take all of these categories we've bought into as adults and just force them on children. Right. I really think the way that my mind was, and I I have the same experience as you, Desiree, in that as I've gotten older, you know, I think starting really at age 15 or 16 to now, there's been a steady process of the racialization of my own mind, which means I've just been forced to think of race so frequently that now I can't help but but think about it when I'm meeting someone. And obviously that it's a separate question, what those thoughts are, what you, what values you have about race upon reflection, but the mere fact that I'm thinking about it so much would not have been natural to me in my childhood or even in many of my teen years. So I've, I've noticed the racialization of my own mind and I've noticed it sort of with horror. I'm seeing, and, and it's interesting to see, to see a friend that you met in a context where your mind was less racialized, right? It's like, I remember meeting this guy when I was 15, not thinking of his race at all. I'm pretty sure he didn't think of my race at all, except maybe the occasional joke, you know, just like a very lighthearted whatever. He saw me as an individual. I saw him as an individual. And and then now, eight years later, when we both have eight more years of being socialized in a country that is very obsessed with race, though many Americans actually can't see that from the inside. And then remembering how effortless you felt with this person in the past and that how subtly there's a weight introduced to the relationship because of how both of your minds have changed in the intervening years how and that 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 makes me feel a sense of loss like a sense of grief for a simpler way of interacting with the world a healthier way of interacting with the world a way where i feel like people's judgments about me are really just about me that's a very nice feeling it's it's nice you know it, to, to feel like when you're interacting with a person, whatever their attitude is about you, it's because of you. It's not, it has nothing to do consciously or subconsciously with your race. It's like you as an individual get to feel all of the love thrown your way. And you also get to experience, of course, all the hate thrown of your way as a product of your own character. And I think that makes for deeper connections with people. It makes you feel seen more as an individual. And uh, I, I lament the 
the replacement of that with the more more superficial relationships or, or, or how how relationships get corro- corroded and made more superficial by the obsession with what group you are from, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess a couple of things I want to say. Um, one, I actually think uh, that stuff can fall away from my own experience because I've gone through that and then it wavered and I know what it's like to both have that and not have that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it's, you're not allowed to do that when you're constantly being forced to think about it. So I do think you can, that can change, you know, reverse, I mean, back to the, the less of a weight. But I also um, want to point out that what happens is that there's the, from my under what I see, I guess, is that there's an introduction of fear into, into the interactions that you have with people and you can't ignore it because one of the things that happens to me, like when I see someone is I wonder if they care. That's the first thing I, I would think, like, do they actually care about like how we might be different? So I don't actually think something else, but like, is this going to be an issue? That's the first thing you know, that might come to my mind. Oh, and then I also wanted to say that you can't not care about it because there are so many consequences, like there are dire social consequences if you mess up. So it's, you can't choose to say, I'm, I'm going to not bother this because you might be called racist and be fired or whatever. Or, I mean, I don't fully agree with it, but I'm sure it happens in, in some cases. You might have someone who is racist actually do something bad that ends up in some, I don't know, life-threatening situation. I mean, I think that used to happen. I don't really think it happens these days, but that's what people say. So it's just like there are such dire social consequences that or you believe that there will be, and there also might be, that you can't possibly not think about it because it matters in the society that you, you live in. The other thing I remembered is that, so, so one, one thing you said is, even being forced to check the box of what identity you are, whether that's because you are applying for a job or you're taking the SAT or ACT and you have to choose a category. Just like at, at all these checkpoints in life, you're asked to identify yourself on forms. And even that experience is part of the socialization of race. And I think I remember you saying that you don't check black on those forms. Well, yeah. What do you check? Well, now I decline to answer if I can. I never used to do that. Now I just like decline, but sometimes it's mandatory with a lot of the government forms. And I only recently found out, which makes me very sad, that a lot of times people who look at your application, they're required to put it down, even if you don't. They're required to identify you, which I, which I think is like awful. Because I don't want to, like if they see you or if they know you, because I don't want to participate in that, but I'm forced to, like, I really don't like that. But I used to put, and I do if I have to, other uh, Caribbean or other West Indian. So that's what I did upon arrival, fresh off the boat, not actually, into the United States. I would, because like without understanding any of the cultural, racial, whatever, um, I didn't naturally identify as Black. I was never taught to. I was, so I put other, I was, you know, more taught to identify as Caribbean or West Indian. So that's what I would do. And that's what I still do. But usually I just try to decline now. Yeah, and this gets into the topic of affirmative action as well. I know, you know, growing up here, I was I was keenly aware as a as a teen 
that every time I checked the black box on a form where I was applying to something, say a college, that that was boosting the attractiveness of my resume in the eyes of whoever is judging me. Certainly when I was applying to college, I was applying to elite universities, Columbia, you know, places where I, I knew the moment I checked that black box, I was giving myself an advantage relative to if I hadn't checked any box or if I had checked the white or the Asian box. And it didn't strike me as a great injustice at the time to say my Asian friend who was also applying to all the same colleges. But in retrospect, it really doesn't seem like the advantage that say I had over him was somehow correcting for historical injustices, right? It just seemed to me like, frankly, it seemed to me like in, in that moment, I was lucky to be black, right? Which is not to say there isn't another moment where I would have been lucky to be white. Certainly, this is the thing about America is that it's so large and there's so many different places, so many different subcultures that there are places where it's just objectively or or it's obvious to everyone that being black in this location at this time, at this place, in this specific context is a disadvantage for me. People are judging me based on the color of my skin. And yet there are other instances where it's obvious to everyone that being black is an advantage, such as applying to elite universities. And part of my issue with the notion of white privilege has been it flattens this whole landscape of advantage and disadvantage and simply says being, you know, white privilege is like a gas that fills up the container of the country such that no part of the country is immune to to white privilege. There's no context in which it would be more advantageous to be say black or or asian and to me that you know the the country is so much more complicated than that uh to reduce it to that is to miss just like so much of of what's going on in social interactions and in different parts of the country and it doesn't mean you're denying that racism is a real thing it just means you're trying to acknowledge the full story of racial advantages and disadvantages. So what what do you think of the notion of white privilege? Yeah, well, I think it's a farce, kind of for the reasons you just explained. And I think it, these, I, these theories people have, like there's so many different social theories out there and a lot of them do this and this is what I think the concept of white privilege comes from critical race theory, but I don't know what the academic term for whatever the all-encompassing theory is that that term comes from, um, like in the the literature. But um, a lot of social theories try to make these absolute claims about the nature of reality. And like, I don't know what can really do that. Like there's not much that can do that. And I also think that's what makes it so that you can classify them as religion or dogma. They're, they're trying to push every single thing into like their frame 
um, of the world. And it's just obviously not true. <laughs> like, like for what the reasons you're saying. Um, and just think of it like that. They're trying to make these absolute claims that apply in all situations, all interactions with people. And that's just not true. That's, that's just not true. The other thing about it is, you know, how many different kinds of privilege there are in life, right? There's really too many to name, but, you know, there's growing up in a home that is safe, you know, safe from crime, for instance. Growing up in a home with two parents rather than one, there's genetic luck, right? Like, are you born with genes that lead you to be more likely to have certain personality traits or personality disorders? Uh, Are you born with, you know, a a symmetrical face that people find to be beautiful? Or, you know, are are you born with just, you know, horrible skin that that people find to to be ugly? Um, These are all, all things that are, you know, uncomfortable to talk about, but that we know influence how you're treated by the world. There's just too much proof at this point from psychology that people do get treated differently based on these totally arbitrary, unchosen characteristics, how tall you are, how deep your voice is, and probably, you know, a a million other micro characteristics that people haven't even thought to measure, right? And any one of these could be made into a meme like white privilege. You know, we, we could be talking about tall privilege. We could be talking about beauty privilege. And the other thing is that even any of those traits have both pros and cons, right? Yeah, I think it would be, it, it would be too simple to just have a, a, a meme for every kind of obvious privilege, like, you know, height and beauty and whatever. Because those things themselves come with downsides that are, that are sometimes not, not obvious or situations in which, you know, they, they tend not to be an advantage. And to have the full conversation about privilege, I think, is, is totally a noble goal, right? Like, that's a lot of what political thinking should be about, is how can we maximize opportunity for people and make the world a fairer place so that the arbitrary characteristics you're born with, so, so that we can somehow use culture and policy to cancel out the huge disparities of luck that certain people are born with. But, you know, the fact that we have this singular focus uh, and on, on white privilege, it, what it proves to me is that a lot of people are not interested in fairness across the board, but in using one of the thousand areas in which you could care about fairness as a, as a sort of, rhetorical weapon to dominate people in arguments. And, you know, it it just strikes me as, as very divisive and you're not really allowed to take people's resentment of this notion seriously. Like one is supposed to roll one's eyes at the white guy who hates hearing about white privilege and sort of not listen to anything he has to say. And I can't, I can't really find you know, I think, frankly, if I were white, I think I would, I, I might have strong feelings about that because you don't know me. I think that's the feeling a lot of people have is you have no idea what I've been through in my life. 
And for you to, on the color of my skin, sort of assume, for, for all I know, for all, for all you know, I'm an orphan, right? And I've, I've, I grew up in an orphanage and had to struggle in all of these various ways. But you're not interested in any of that. You're just interested in the fact that I'm white. And so you think you know something about how I grew up and what level of privilege I grew up with. And so you're going to throw that at me without being interested in any of the other ways in which I might have gotten the short end of a, of a stick that we should care about in society. I think that's what a lot of people resent about it. And I think I, I would resent that too if I were white. Yeah. Do, do you have some reaction to that? or I do. People also do that with ideas. So they assume that because you... I don't know, have some certain idea about how to help people in the world if you're not with their agenda of how to do it, then that means that you had an easy life. So I just want to say that people also do that with with ideas. And they assume that each person, if they are, uh, if each person has a particular experience within the world, that they'll come to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. So they think that if me and another woman from Jamaica came to the U.S. and we each had five positive experiences with um, people who are of a different race and uh, five positive, five negative experiences with people who are of a different race, that we're both going to decide that the U S is either racist or not racist. And that's not how people operate. Like people are different when they come to to their conclusions. So that that's, that's one thing. Another thing is um, you mentioned canceling a privilege or like advantage. I'm not sure what exact word you use. I don't think that's possible. Mm. I think that it's personally, and I, I don't think that everyone has to think this. I think that it's good to want to give, opportunities to people when you realize that through even if it is through their fault you might still want to help but usually through no fault of their own um they might be at some kind of disadvantage in the world but usually when you provide things to people it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have the outcomes um that you think are fair and then um when it comes to the idea of uh, uh fairness i think what often happens is uh people are looking at individuals as data points because that's how they they track fairness. And um, again, like people aren't units. Thing that I think is so cursed about data and science because I really like data and science and I I feel as if people, well, well, they do a couple of things. Firstly, you know, I gave you a percentage earlier in my answer. Like that's how a lot of the world is, is like, if you actually look at the full picture, people don't want to look at the full picture. They, they want to get some kind of simple statement from complicated data. And like that, that's not what you're actually seeing. You're seeing like some kind of probability that something might happen or um, like the majority of the data looks like this, but then you apply that, that majority rule to, to talk about the whole thing. And that's not actually what's going on. And they're talking about white privilege and um, how you're looking at one particular uh, characteristic that an individual might have when you, you could also look at other things and you, you could also look at the positive or the negative, but you're only looking at the positive. 
And what people do is they take this one trait out of so many of a person, and then they look at this one other trait out of so many, usually it's something people fight for in the world, like resources. So you're looking at like income, how much money they're making, but you're only looking at two very, 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 very minute data points of like, not even the person, but, but society, like that's just one thing you're looking at. What about how happy a person is? <laughs> like, you're not just how much money they have. And I don't know what, it, what else it could be. What about how much sunshine they have? in their lives, like literally, physically, like in their home, like that's kind of important. I think how much light you have, like that really affects people's moods. But I don't know, people just narrow, they just narrow, like really, 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 really um, complex things. And then another thing I want to mention too, is that when it comes to inequality in certain attributes, say like if a person comes from a good household however you want to define a good household like they have good nutrition they have books around the house they have parents who read to them they have two parents they're they're in a safe neighborhood a lot of that cannot be um controlled for and then even when you you try to help which i think is a is a good thing you still might not get the outcome you want because well you want being like the the statistical outcomes because that's what people are looking at and what i find that people do is they attribute malice which is also just an assumption that like people are having different outcomes because they're trying to keep people down. And yes, people do that. We absolutely know that people do try to keep others down, but that's not always the case. And that's an assumption that, that people make that because you, you're seeing different things, it means that people are trying to do that. And it might help if um, we give people the benefit of the doubt in trying to take things from them. Cause that's what I see um, a lot of uh what people are trying to do is they're using you, you called it a rhetorical weapon or something in order to you know weigh in arguments and i think a lot of it is people want to take the resources from other people the thing is i don't think i'm crazy here a lot of people want to give those resources <laughs> like i think it's bad for that to be done through force like it, like reparations to the government but if people want to do that voluntarily i think that's fine I, but like but that's just you know that's another thing but I guess that's, that's my response to everything you just said, which is a lot. I know what I just said was a lot. I know I, 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 we've also talked a little bit about immigration, I think. And I know you have a lot of thoughts about that. I had Brian Kaplan on my podcast months ago. I actually, I probably spoke to him about a year ago, though I didn't release it for many months. He wrote what I thought was a really interesting book, Arguing for Open Borders which seems like a crazy policy, but I think, you know, he, he makes the best case for it that I'd ever heard. And he's, he's coming from the point of view of a pretty hardcore libertarian economist, but also just a, a, a person very, who, who argues in a very rational and, and sort of principled way. And I found it pretty compelling. I'm, I'm not sure if I, if it totally convinced me that it's, it's doable or practical, but I'm curious, you know, you're both, both an immigrant and someone who thinks about immigration independent of your N of one life experience. So what kinds of thoughts do you have about immigration? Um, well, hmm, I have a lot of thoughts about immigration. Um, I know that's a vague question. <laughs> yeah, because like you, I, it, okay, so I'll just 
first and foremost say that I think the, the, the U.S. immigration system is totally messed up, just like it's it's just seems very political. Um, I've been here for, you know, like 10 years and it's just been difficult the whole time, no matter who is in charge, even though, yes, certain things might have been enforced more strictly under Trump. But I also think it's more important to figure out uh, like what the actual laws are and have those laws be functional, like make sense, uh, which I, I don't think they do um, for, for the U.S. And I know I'm not giving specifics, but like there's that. And then there's also, you can ask my questions. And then there's also immigration in a more broad sense. So I'll just give a few points on, uh, first of all, I don't think that someone belongs, and this is a, a group tribal thing to their country. Like, I don't think that because someone is born somewhere that they need to like give their labor, their mind, whatever things that might help a country to that country. However, at the same time, I, I understand that even my thinking that that might not benefit like society, certain societies, I guess, as a whole. But I, I think I think that the individual has that right. Well, they don't in the modern world. But ideally, I don't think that someone should have to give their human capital um, um, to the society that they were born in just because. Now, if the society is providing, I don't want to go into too much detail, but there's something to consider is if they're like being paid, their education is being given to them for free, then you could say that they might owe something to like the rest of society because they're giving it to them. But that's not always the case. Yeah, what you're, ta- what you're talking about, I've heard it called brain drain. Have you heard that? Right, term? right, right. Yeah, you yeah. You mentioned I've- that you know, the, the, the smartest, most ambitious people from a particular country, if they all immigrate, then those are the people that might've ended up sort of helping lift that country out of poverty. I've heard people say that. Yes. But it's not just countries also like within countries, like you yeah. have it with different regions like that. Yeah. Like it's like a, just something that's happened according to all of human history, <laughs> like uh, people you know, leave, yeah, go to other locations. Um, and then just to give another general opinion, um, I am both for and against open borders. So the reason why I say that is I think people within a country should be able to decide who they want there or not. So I think people should have that sovereignty. Um, I think what I, I think what has happened with the U.S. is that the people within it can't decide. They're at odds with each other about what they want to do. But I do think that people should be able, like the people within the country should be able to do that. And then in terms of open borders, personally, like if it were my place, which is not that like I don't own anywhere that I like that it or not, I would care. I would decide what I value. So there are certain traits that I might want in people. And um, I would want to know that they're coming there for those reasons. So usually when I hear about immigration topics and open borders, the first thing I think about is are they coming there because they care about I guess what the country wants them to care about um, or are they coming there just to gain resources? So usually the first thing I ask is they just get things when they get there, like through welfare, for example. And that's either practically or uh, legally, because there might be like laws on the books that says that like an immigrant can't do something, but then if those laws are enforced then they do anyway. And I, I guess I personally, I wouldn't want that. But I think that people might choose if they wanted to, and this is the, the thing about agreeing or not agreeing and being able to come to some consensus, to give that or not give that. So I am not, I, I know we disagree on this, like a fan of um, 
it's not charity if it's through the state, but charity through the state. So I don't think it should be done through that. So for that reason, I personally would say that I'm only for open borders if people don't just like get welfare. I mean, after a certain time, they could, but if they're painting, but that's like my personal opinion. But then I also gave my you know, kind of general ideas, which is, it's a lot. It's a big topic. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it's, it's one year sort of enmeshed in with your personal desire to stay here or your conflicting feelings about that. But right. I really, I hope that works out. I hope you're able to stay here. America needs you. Everybody says that. But America makes it very difficult. Desperately. <laughs> okay, before I let you go, can you tell my audience where they can find your work? Yes, I would love to tell your audience where they can find my work. You can find my work at justthinkingoutloud.tv and then on my podcast, justthinkingoutloud.tv slash podcast and then YouTube, search for Just Thinking Out Loud uh, with Desiree. So those are the places. Again, you can catch my conversation on Desiree's channel from two years ago on that page as well. Just thinking out loud. I'm curious if people notice any differences in, in us or I think people might get a kick out of that. All right. So Desiree, thank you so much for coming on my show. It's been a pleasure and I uh, look forward to having you again soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to many more conversations. Thank you.